Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. This morning, I have the privilege of opening God's Word with you. So if you have a Bible, please open it to Psalm 117. Psalm 117. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to pray. Psalm 117. And read the whole psalm. Here we go. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would see the richness of this text this morning. That you are the God who keeps our end of the bargain. I pray that we would have an experience with your grace. That grace would not just be some cliche word we toss around. But we would know and experience what it means that we worship a God who is grace and who is compassion and who is faithful and loyal to his people. God, I pray that um, you would be with me, the sinner. That I would get out of the way and that your word would go forth clearly. Jesus' name, amen. Not knowing the value of what you have can be costly. Not understanding the value of what you have can cost you tons of money. Or as Joni Mitchell says, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone. A couple years ago in upstate New York, uh, there was an estate sale. And a woman, a little bowl caught her eye. It was a small bowl, maybe three inches in diameter. Uh, and so she bought it, put it on display in her family room for several years. And a few years into the process, she's like, you know what, I, that bowl looks old. I wonder if I can get it appraised. How much is it worth? And so uh, she takes it to an appraiser who appraises it. Uh, it wasn't just a random bowl that was, you know, someone bought it Pier 1 in the 70s and had it for a few years. It actually turned out to be a 1,000-year-old treasure from the Northern Song Dynasty. And it was appraised at 200, somewhere between 200 and $300,000. Uh, it ended up actually selling at auction. There was a bidding war between four bidders for $2.2 million. So now just think of that for a second. That means that somebody in upstate New York sold a $2.2 million bowl for $3. That's an insane return on investment if you're buying it, but if you're getting rid of it, that really hurts. Or take the Parks and Rec Department in the northern Spanish town of Cristavo de Sia. Uh, they were given the task of like, hey, this year is the year we're going to really revamp our parks and recs. So they're like, okay, anytime you see something, fix it, take a picture of it, put it on social media. They're like, okay, great. So they head out and they see what they think is a broken down picnic table. And so they're like, man, this is an easy win. We can fix this in a day. It'll be great. So what they do is they, they dump a ton, a ton of concrete into it, and the concrete goes all beneath it. And they didn't really know why. So they fix the slabs, and they, it looked like a stone picnic table. They put it upright, tear some stuff out, put this brand new picnic table, take a picture of it, post it on social media. Well, a couple weeks later, the backlash starts happening. Turns out it wasn't a broken down picnic table at all, but it was actually a 6,000-year-old burial marker for a Celtic burial site. So buried underneath it were all these bodies, and they just dumped concrete all over it. Completely ruined it. Not knowing the value of what you have can be costly. 
And, and this happens all the time when people just underestimate the value of what they have, be it in estate sales in upstate New York, be it in, you know, be it in a parks and rec department or in, in Belize, I think it was, where they accidentally um, blew up a 2,700-year-old Mayan pyramid and used the rubble to repair the road. Apparently, they just didn't know. I mean, this stuff happens all the time. It happens actually this morning. This morning, we read a text that's amazing. And this morning, I don't want you to miss the value of what this text is saying. This text pushes back on cliches about God. This text challenges us to our core about God's love for us. See, I think we naturally don't believe that God loves us. Sure, we'll say that, we'll sing that. It's kind of this cliche, yeah, God loves us, sure. But do we really believe that? And this text that we just read gets up in your face about it. This text pushes back on any and all doubts about God's love for his people. Uh, the pastor Eugene Peterson, he recently just died, and at his memorial service, um, his son said this about Eugene Peterson. He said, my dad, had his life had one message, and that message was this. God loves you. He is for you. He's coming after you. He is relentless. Let me say that again. God loves you. He's for you. He's coming after you. And he is relentless. That is a summary of this psalm. This psalm summarizes the whole story of Scripture and puts God's amazing grace on display. And the problem is we read it and we're like, uh, it kind of just sounds like every other psalm. And it's not just us. I mean, commentators, if you read commentators on this psalm, they don't get it. They're like, this is short. Maybe it belongs in 118. Maybe it belongs in 116. But this psalm is the thesis statement for the whole book of the Psalms, and I would actually say the whole story of Scripture. See, and part of the reason we don't get it is because the psalm is written in poetry. See, we, have, we worship a God who speaks in poetry. Nearly one-third of the Bible, when God speaks, it's, it's in poetry. Uh, and poetry has this way of just bringing a richness and a depth that simply just, just the facts doesn't. So, for example, when Sting and the police, when he could have just simply said this, my lover left me and I miss her. But he doesn't. He says this, the bed's too big without you. And that just creates this picture and this, this depth that just simply telling the facts does it. And that's what this psalm does. And since we live in a Netflix age where we have just Netflix on our phone, everything is instant, we don't take the time to really dwell and sit and think about this text. And so this morning, that's what I want to do. I want us to just unpack the poetry and the, the richness of this text. And just forewarning, I kind of have the task this morning of being the guy who comes up on stage after the comedian and tries to explain the joke. And like, it, it, the magic may be gone. I don't think so. This is a very rich text, and I feel kind of like I'm just trying to explain the beauty of it in a way that may take all the beauty away from it. But I hope that's not the case. Um, so this morning, if we're going to understand this text, we need to understand two truths. This text teaches, teaches us two truths about God that are amazing and have the potential to help you experience grace in a richer and deeper way. The first truth is this. It's calling us to trust the God who keeps your end of the bargain. The God who keeps your end of the bargain. And then after we see that, this text creates a tension. It creates a tension that it doesn't solve, actually. Uh, and that's, well, what do unworthy people do? How, how is God good 
when he loves sinners. And actually, Jesus solves that tension because he quotes this psalm in a powerful way. So we're gonna, it's gonna raise a tension, and then we're gonna try to solve it. So, uh, let's first look at this whole truth of uh, trusting the God who keeps your end of the bargain. Let me read this, this psalm again, because we missed it when we first read it. We didn't see, how is God keeping our end of the bargain? Let's, let's read it again. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you people. Why? For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Okay, where do I see God keeping our end of the bargain? Well, uh, this morning, you were probably, as you were headed to church, you were... There's lots of churchy words you may have anticipated hearing. Grace was probably one of them. Covenant was probably not one of them. Covenant is a, is a word that we don't really use outside of, of church circles, and it's actually a word that we don't really use in church circles. Maybe the last time you heard the word covenant uh, was when you were at a wedding. Uh, it's just a word that is, it's, it's an idea that's ancient, and it's falling out of use in our culture. And so this text is all about God and his covenant faithfulness. So in order to explain to you what a covenant is, I had to use the thing that's closest in our culture, and it's actually so, it's, it's so close, it actually ends up being miles and miles apart. But that's the idea of a contract. And so we live in a society that's built on contracts. So for example, everyone in this room has a cell phone. Nearly everyone. I'm sure there's, there's one punk rocker out there who doesn't have a cell phone. But nearly everyone has a cell phone. So if you want a cell phone, you need to go to a cell phone company and say, hey, I would like service from you. And so they write up a contract. And so you say, hey, I will pay you X amount of dollars, and you will give me cell phone service. And so that's a contract. You have two parties coming together, agreeing on something, and then each of them uh, operates saying, hey, I'll do this, and you give me this, and and that's how it works. Well, contracts are thing-oriented. Thing-oriented. Your relationship with Verizon is not based on the people who run Verizon. You don't know them. You don't love them. It's all about you're trying to get just a cell phone service from them, and you're paying for it. The second you stop paying for it, they stop your service. Likewise, the second the service is not so great, you stop paying for it. In that relationship, it's centered around you're getting what you want, and they're getting what they want. Covenants are similar. You have two parties coming together, and they they write up something that they're going to agree on, except they're not thing-oriented. Covenants are relationship-oriented. So this is how covenants work in the Bible. God, the stronger party, comes to man, the weaker party, and says, let's make a covenant. And here's what I'll do for you. I will give you this word, loyal love. I It's, it's what's used in verse 2. I'm going to give you love. And you, in response to that love, will give me, it's, it's used in the second part of that verb, faithfulness. So, I'll be your God, you will be my people. Think about the Ten Commandments. God rescues his children up out of Israel. and So, that's the love. He saves them and he rescues them. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. Hey, because I've saved you, love me in this way. Do these things. Because you've been saved. Right? Well, now this text pushes back on that. This is what this text says. Great is his love toward us. Okay, we get that, right? He loves us, yeah. 
and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Those two words together, love and faithfulness, translated all different types of ways throughout the Bible. Sometimes love is translated the steadfast love, the loyal love, the grace. And faithfulness, oftentimes translated truth. The grace and truth of God are directed at us. Here's what that passage is saying. God has entered into a relationship with you. And he says, I will keep up both ends of that bargain. There is nothing for you to do. You don't have to do anything. I'm entering into this relationship. I'm saying, I'm God, your people, and I am coming to do it all. And this passage actually is amazing for two reasons. One, God isn't just nice. This flows out of the character of who he is. In Exodus, this psalm is almost a meditation on Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, Moses is on Mount Sinai with God, and it's the only time in the Hebrew Bible that God uh, uses his own name twice. He says, who am I? I'm Yahweh, Yahweh. And this is what he says about himself. Compassionate and gracious. Those same two words that were used in Psalm 117. He's saying, that's just who I am. You can bank on my grace. You can bank on my faithfulness. Why? Because it flows out of who I am. I'm not putting on a show. I'm not like, man, you really annoy me, so I'm just giving you this graciousness. It flows out of the very character of who God is. This grace and compassion. And listen to what the psalm says about the grace and compassion. It says it's strong toward us. That word strong is often used uh, to describe a military conquest. There's a losing side and there's a winning side. This is what the psalmist is saying. God's grace, that's really, that's the winning side. It conquers us. It's powerful over us. And another reason this psalm is so amazing is because, like I said, it pushes back on cliches. This, this psalm was written when the people were in exile. So remember, God rescues his people up out of the, the nation of, of Egypt. They're in slavery. And he brings them to the promised land. Well, why does he do that? Because God, sin is not just a, a Jewish problem. Sin is a human problem. The, sin has affected every single person on the planet. And so God picks a group of people saves them, and then puts them in the center of the world at that time so that they would have all this interaction with all their neighbors so that God's grace would be on display. What happens, though? Does Israel actually be a picture of God's grace? No. They become worse than the nations. And so God kicks them out of the promised land. That's where the Psalms, that's the context of the Psalms. The Psalms are a praise book for those who are in exile. God raises the nations that Israel was supposed to reach, God raises up to punish them and kick them out of the land. Now think about this psalm again. Praise the Lord, who? All nations. Extol him, who? All you people. People we were supposed to reach, now God has now God has sent us out into you and we're now we need to reach you. See Israel had what had they done? They had they knew about this grace, they knew about this covenant faithfulness of God. And they turned it into a country club. Think about the prophet Jonah, right? So God's saying, hey, go give my message of grace to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, no way. I don't like them. They don't deserve it. They don't earn it. And so here's, and they're not worthy of that grace. And so here's what God does. He says, he's like, you're going. I'm moving heaven and earth and the laws of nature. Yeah, fish don't eat people. Yeah, because that's how much I want the nations to get your, my message of grace. 
And then when Nineveh does repent, what does Jonah say? God, I didn't, I didn't want to come here because I knew. I knew this is what you were going to do. Well, why does Jonah say that? Because of Exodus 34. God is grace and he is faithfulness. This flows out of the character of who he is. And it was a message for the world. So God closing down Israel's country club and sending them into the nations actually ends up being part of his gracious way of saving them. They took grace and they were perverting it. They're making it all about themselves. And what, you know, we enjoy this. We don't want anyone else to have it. And God sends them out. This is the, this is the God. Even look at this. This is Exodus eighty or Psalm eighty nine. Excuse me. If you don't believe me that God is even being gracious to Israel as He sends them out uh, in Psalm eighty nine, this word, these words, grace and faithfulness, are used over and over and over. And then God is talking about Israel. He says this in verse thirty: If my sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes. If they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commandments. Alright, so we have the situation that Israel's in. They're disobeying God like crazy. What does it say next? I'll punish them with a rod. Yeah, for their iniquities with flogging. But I will not take my love from him. Nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. That's this, those two words right there. The grace of God and the truth of God, the faithfulness of God. You can take that to the bank. This is, what, this is what the psalmist is introducing us to. A God who keeps our end of the bargain. And this psalm kind of creates a tension. Okay, so God is gracious. God is loving. He's a covenant-keeping God. He keeps our end of the bargain. But what, what about sin? L- listen to Exodus 34 again. This is what Exodus 34 says. That God is gracious and compassionate, um, slow to anger, abounding in these things, love and faithfulness, Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> to the third and fourth generation, but gives grace to thousands. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Psalm 117 creates a tension that it doesn't answer. Psalm 117 has the message, God loves you, he is for you. And we respond with, the reason we don't believe that is because we know we're not lovable. We know we're sinful. It's like, okay, God loves us. What about this thing called sin? What about brokenness? Think about, think about even just stories in the Bible. David and Bathsheba, right? So David, he's king, he commits adultery, kills, kills this guy Uriah, takes his wife, and then he writes this beautiful psalm, 51. God, forgive me. God forgives him. Well, if you're Uriah's parents, your son's still dead. How is God good? How can God forgive sinners and still be good? And that's what this, this psalm, it creates this tension. Okay, God, you're for me, but I don't deserve it. Okay, God, you, you're, you're coming after me. You, you're relentless. Okay, but, but like I'm wicked. What do we do with that? What do we do with that tension? This is where this gets pretty exciting. This tension, the psalm just leaves us in it. It's happy to let us think about it. Um, but if you, there's verses that you know that these two words are in, and they, become, they start to become familiar, and you hopefully see them with new eyes. When Jesus came in John 1, what does it say that he came full of? He, he came full of grace and truth, Right? That's the same two words that are used in this passage. 
That great is the grace of the Lord. It's powerful toward us and his faithfulness endures forever. Grace and truth. Same words that Jesus comes full in. Um, This psalm that we read, Psalm 117, it's part of a group of psalms called the Hillel Psalms. Um, And that just means praise. It's actually, this psalm is called a Thanksgiving psalm. So I'm super creative. You're welcome. Um, But um, this psalm, they were sung as a unit together in order around like holidays, like Passover and festivals. And we know from Mark's gospel that when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, they sing Psalm 118. And we know from Matthew's gospel that when they're celebrating, when they drink the last cup of Passover, they sing a song. A psalm, literally is what it says. And we know that these songs were sung in order. So we can piece together that Jesus, on his way to be betrayed, this is the song that was on his lips. Great is the steadfast love of the Lord toward us, and his faithfulness endures forever. This is the song of the cross. Jesus takes the tension of this psalm and answers how God can both be good and wildly gracious. It's that Jesus paid the penalty for our failures. And that's the other thing this psalm invites us to do. It invites us to trust a God who not only keeps his end, our end of the bargain, he keeps both ends. He says, there's nothing for you to do. I have done it all. And then, not only do we fail, he pays the penalty for that failure. And what's, what's the response that the psalmist has? Praise. See, gratitude, you can't force it. You can't force yourself to be a, a gracious and happy person. So, for example, this word praise the Lord, it's used in Genesis uh, when Sarah, she shows up in, in Pharaoh's courts and all the people are noticing her and they say, she's beautiful. And that's the word they use. They're, they're, they're praising her. You don't praise something if you don't see the beauty of it, if you don't know its value. This, shaw, this psalm puts the beauty and the richness and the splendor of God's grace on full display. This was the song of the exile. They're in a strange land, and they're singing, man, God loves us. You're like, what? How does God love you? He sent you out into the world. Well, he, they, they started to see God's plan coming into fruition. The world is broken and lost, and he is committed to saving that world. He's not going to abandon us. He loves us. He is relentlessly pursuing after us. And how, what about our failures? What, what is that? Well, this is the song that Jesus sang as he headed to pay for those failures. When we start to see God's plan and how it comes together, his plan is not to just get us to like fall in line, but his plan is to shower us with this grace and with this love. We can only respond with gratitude. And so, since it is Thanksgiving, uh, I want to give you guys four ways to cultivate gratitude. And we'll close with this in response to the psalm. Uh, four ways. The first way to cultivate gratitude is don't force it. Don't force it. There's nothing that will kill gratitude more than you trying to make yourself be gracious. And this psalm frees you to be honest about it. God, God has everything taken care of. He has forgiven, he, he knows that you're a failure and he still says this about you. You can be, you don't have to force it. And so secondly, after you realize, okay, I don't have to, if I force gratitude, it's going to make it worse. Here's what, here's what I think you need to do next. Be honest about your ingratitude. Be like, God, I, 
I should be gracious. Look, I know there are people that have it way worse than me. I'm just not grateful. I'm not. That's, those two things, not forcing it and then actually allowing yourself to be honest about it, are the first steps toward cultivating a gracious heart. And then thirdly, ask God to help you see what you're not seeing. This text is rich. This text says that God is gracious even when he doesn't look like it. This text says that God's graciousness flows out of who he is. This text is, it just has so much meaning. And it's there regardless of whether or not we see it. Maybe when we read it at first, you're like, this sounds like all the other psalms. Like, what's the big deal about this psalm? So ask God to see, God, I'm sure there's something out there that I'm not seeing. Help me to see it. And lastly, trust and wait. Trust and wait. When Israel was in exile, those were dark times. They were, they were sent into rough places. Many of them were slaves. It was awful. Just read the book of Esther. It was not a pie-in-the-sky fun time. It's easy for us to look back on it and think, oh, easy. But here's the truth that pushes back against dark times. God loves you. He is for you. He's coming after you. He is relentless. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us to believe the truth of this psalm, that we are faithless and you are faithful, that left to our own devices, we would keep failing you, but you in mercy chose to love a people and to be gracious to us in spite of our failures. So God, I pray that would, seeing that would help cultivate real gratitude and real worship and real joy even in the midst of chaos and dark times. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.